0: Say yeah. the What is up, punks? It's Shinobi, and we're bringing you Block Digest episode 224 at Block Height 634,591, Saturday, June 13th. So, what is going on today, Janine? Uh,
1: not not much, just uh, watching as a bunch of people make an embarrassment of themselves on social media, and meanwhile... Um, something I've been working on, which is not ready, uh, yet for me to announce, but I've been working on a newsletter about, uh, privacy related developments and events in Bitcoin. And that will be published. Well, it's already published technically, if you can find it, but I will be announcing that at a later time, but I just want to know, uh, I'm doing that. Woo!
0: I've been yelling at you, write more, for forever and ever and ever and ever. Write more, Janine!
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, part of the reason is just I have been trying to figure out various ways to fix my writer's block that I've had for the last several months, and that was basically the thing that did it. So, pretty happy about that, and I hope people like it when it comes out.
0: Well, I'm sure everybody is looking forward to it, but um, yeah, you know, speaking of people making fools of themselves on a uh, social media, how about people making fools of themselves uh, in the real world?
1: Mm, I bet there's a lot more of that happening lately. Yep.
0: So, uh, I don't what know what is this is... chat's
1: up to. <laughs> that
0: is perfectly memed. Um yeah, so this this is kind of a complicated one. Um and I, I really feel like I need to kind of disentangle uh the concept from the implementation, really. Cause you know, when you talk autonomous zones, I mean abstractly, I would love to see this country, um, you know, the US, break up into a bunch of autonomous zones. Um I think that is where we need to go and that would be a very healthy thing in terms of live and let live because this country at at this point is people living in totally different universes. But the thing is with with Chaz is um I don't think it's going to last. And it's because well I mean chiefly this isn't really a community um this is a bunch of people that kind of stormed a city um stole air quote a bunch of other people's property and then walled it off and they're role-playing um secessionaries now and it's really clear that they didn't think this through on any level whatsoever um food supplies, where they did this, any kind of long term plan for sustainability. um, You can clearly see none of that even popped into any of these people's heads. And
1: yeah, uh, I mean, the whole, the whole point of the term autonomous means that you're, you're autonomous, (laughs) and you can survive separately (laughs) from your surroundings.
0: Mhm but you know it's it's just this specific zone chaz in Seattle um not going to lie I've just been laughing at the utter stupidity of people um there this entire time but you know I do want to kind of spell out a few things that I think are getting overblown one way or another um So pretty much history, although trying to apply that at at these timescales is kind of laughable. Um, This was started by um, a group of Antifa members um, from a a Seattle Antifa group. And currently the big meme going around right now is the warlord um, Raz, he's a local rap artist um and actually real estate owner who who rents some properties on airbnb who i mean everybody's claiming that he's in charge but i haven't really seen anything except videos of him trying to go around and play the role of the police and one of the the videos circulating is him getting into an argument with two of his enforcers um air quotes with somebody who was spray painting a business and he wanted to know if the dude had the business owner's permission um and now this turns into a scuffle but the thing is with the film um the camera just starts spinning around um the dude's phone who is filming it um the instant everything started so we don't really see what happened like how much violence did that get um so like i want to kind of temper that that warlord interpretation of like this guy is self-admittedly going around air quote policing the space but really show show me the the bloodied person or the really fucked up person um after encountering him or his people I haven't clearly seen that yet. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if that was going on, but I haven't seen crystal clear that happened anywhere out of this. But, you know that said, um we have seen a, a machete wielding um homeless man. Um storm through the park on the edge of the zone. Um, we, we've we seen a stick-wielding homeless man squat and claim their community garden. Um, so it's I, I definitely think that there will be violence there before the end of that. But I just want people to, to keep in mind how much fucking bullshit misinformation is circulating. You know, and I'll say again, like, I think this will end in violence um, before it's all said and done. But I think it's a bit premature to say that there are warlords running around and looting and raping and pillaging in Chaz um, when we haven't really seen anything definitive um, beyond claims. Like, we've seen arguments, we've seen disputes, heated moments in the zone. But nothing crystal clear in terms of evidence um, as far as widespread behavior like that. And so, like, honestly, it's, this is a weird experiment. And this first version of it is undeniably being ran by children and people who didn't think this shit through at all. But it's still that weird experiment.
1: Yeah, surprise, uh, the group that prides itself on not believing in property rights has a problem enforcing boundaries and property rights (laughs) and claims over land um yeah i've i've only barely heard about this place just from what i've seen other people saying around me but my my guess is that it's either going to end up close to or worse than what we saw with Liberland, which was a bunch of people who claimed to care about freedom getting together, choosing a president who had no actual formal contractual position whatsoever, and basically getting together on an island in the middle of a lake that you could only access by boat and calling that an autonomous zone. Um, That is... Oh, and also forming a secret police service, reportedly. Um, Yeah, it's funny how the the people who are fighting against uh, unaccountable authority and use of force tend to actually just recreate those kinds of things because they have no fundamental... Agreement about how force should be used and being actually nonviolent. So, yeah, that's what happens when these people get together. Um, Again, I do not at all think that the uh, determination that anyone who uses this label uh, makes them terrorists, as was declared by the Orange Man a few days ago, or week, I don't even remember, everything goes so quickly now, but yeah, that's the interesting part, um, I think about that, is that we've recently heard that he has uh, issued an executive order against the International Criminal Court, uh, basically imposing economic sanctions on people who are part of the ICC because they were planning to investigate the United States for war crimes in Afghanistan um it's kind of interesting you know we when should someone... have
0: investigated ourselves for all of that like you shouldn't need the fucking world to come in and do it for us
1: yeah because investigating yourself for you
0: know what i mean hold <laughs> hold ourselves accountable we shouldn't need the entire rest of the fucking world to try and do that for us
1: yeah i mean that that would be great if the u s actually had a history of holding itself accountable, but <laughs> it tends to uh just want to hold other people to account for rules that they want to be immune from so very very similar uh very similar things happening on large and small scales
0: mhm but you know the like this autonomous zone is really my, my real two problems with it are one, um, the people running it are morons and you don't need to do more than glance at how things are going to see that. And two, like they, they just stole other people's property and land. Like they didn't do this with their own property. They, they didn't do this voluntarily. They just squatted and stole shit. And it's like I, like, I really do want to see this country peacefully break down into zones like this. I mean, maybe not as small or nutty about things, but I want to see that. But that doesn't work when you just roll in, wall off other people's shit and go, this is mine now. Do it with your own property. Do it with your own community where there is actual trust and respect amongst each other. And it might actually work. It might actually survive and not just spiral into the types of conflict and bickering and eventually, I think, violence that that it's spiraling into right now because all of that is happening because – this wasn't done with their own property, within a community that actually trusted and respected each other. It's just a bunch of LARPing children going, we secede now.
1: That, uh, should probably move on to other uh, non-Bitcoin stories so that we can get to the Bitcoin stories.
0: Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, this is... <laughs> This is a really interesting one. Um, So, I've been screaming for the past month or more now um, that the CCP is obviously um, pretty much playing propaganda games on social media in the wake of coronavirus, um, in the wake of all of the unrest and shit going on in the US right now. And, you know, a couple days ago, Um, And I do want to give credit to Twitter because they are the only platform out there I'm aware of that does anything like this. Um, They regularly publish reports on accounts and tweets and um, active networks of, of accounts on their platform that they believe is ran by foreign governments for propaganda purposes. And they dropped the existence of a botnet made up of 23,000 something core accounts actively creating content and almost uh, 150,000 accounts amplifying those core ones. And, you know, I actually spent some time over the last couple of days going through some of the actual raw data sets that they published. Um, and I, I obviously don't speak Mandarin. So I was only really able to look at um, the subset of that posted in the English language. But, I, you know, I went through the whole thing, um, looking at that subset based on hashtags. And there are four consistent things. That dominated almost all of that. Um, one was hashtags related to the coronavirus outbreak, um, specifically praising China's response to everything, and inversely trying to paint America's response as inept and incompetent. Um, hint um, both of our governments fucked up. Um, two, the Hong Kong protests. And trying to paint them as simply childish thugs, um, unwilling to exist in a civil society. Um, Yeah, that's obviously bullshit. And you can see why they want to paint that narrative. Um, The third was Miles Guo. If anybody's been paying attention to what I've been saying about this shit lately, um, he's an exiled Chinese billionaire um, from the Communist Party who pretty much fell from grace as Xi Jinping was rising to power. And now, honestly, you can flip a coin as far as the available information out there. Um, He is either just an honorable Chinese man who wants to see the CCP fall and democracy rise in China or He's just a, another shady CCP guy who fell out of favor as zeros to power. Um, and honestly, um, flip a coin based on the actual verifiable information out there. But every tweet mentioning him was specifically um, aimed at discrediting him and making him look untrustworthy. He recently just announced on the the 4th of June um, a new Chinese government in exile encouraging revolution against the CCP on the anniversary of Tiananmen Square. Um, And then an interesting thing from 2019, um, this botnet actually had a pretty big footprint in terms of cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin and shilling them in a a very um, pumpy-dumpy way. So, yeah, Um, if you, you know, trust Twitter's disclosure here and aren't thinking, oh, my God, 4D chess um, disinformation, yada, yada. Um, Yeah, the CCP was operating a botnet 150 times larger than any other state operated botnet Twitter has ever found on their platform. And those were the four things they were most interested in controlling the narrative of.
1: It's not a uh, surprise me at all, and they're also uh, not the only company to be affected by CCP operations to potentially engage in censorship. Hmm.
0: So you know that's something to think about. Um, you know that that, shit, that shit's happening. It's not a deflection. It's not a, uh, I don't know. Uh, How do I put this? A lot of people who don't like America and I'm not really fond of my own government myself who, who have been trying to paint the entire idea that other countries doing that shit right now is just some kind of way to buck responsibility for the shit we've done as a nation. And, um, yeah, we've done a lot of shady shit, but no, that's not a deflection. Um both of those things can be true at the same time. So, yeah. Welcome to the um the information war.
1: Shall we move on to other aspects of that?
0: Ah, uh, yeah, I think that would be a fitting time.
1: So, in episodes 214, 219, and 222, we talked about how Zoom has completely bungled their claims about adding end-to-end encryption and other security features to their platform lately, uh, including a recent decision to not allow free or unregistered users to have encrypted sessions because child porn, which is misleading primarily because it implies that paying for a service somehow prevents child exploitation because pedophiles can't afford ten or twenty dollars a month for Zoom. Who knew? Anyway, on June tenth, a reporter named uh, Bethany Allen Abrahamian uh, revealed that Zoom had recently closed the account of a group of prominent U.S.-based Chinese activists after they held a Zoom event commemorating the thirty-first anniversary of the June fourth. Uh, Tiananmen Square Massacre. The user was, quote, the founder of the U.S. uh, nonprofit Humanitarian China and former student leader of the 1989 Tiananmen Square protests. He organized the May 31st event held through a paid Zoom account associated with Humanitarian China. About 250 people attended the event. Speakers included mothers of students that were killed during the 1989 crackdown, Organizers of Hong Kong's Tiananmen Square uh, Candlelight Vigil and others. On June 7th, the Zoom account uh, of the, um, this founder displayed a message that it had been shut down. Uh, he then sent this uh, in a screenshot to Axios, which is the publication that the reporter uh, wrote through. Um, He has not been able to access, well, at at the time of print, he was not able to access the account, and Zoom uh, did not respond to any of his emails. A second Zoom account belonging to a pro-democracy activist, uh, who is also a former Hong Kong politician and pro-democracy, wait, they kind of repeat themselves there, um, because I'm quoting from the article, Uh, basically a... Hong Kong uh, former Hong Kong politician pro democracy activist uh, also had his account closed in late May, um, and they received no response from Zoom either. Um, they say we are outraged by this act from Zoom, a U.S. company, as the most commercially popular meeting software worldwide. Zoom is essentially at Zoom is essential as an unbanned outreach uh, to Chinese audiences, remembering and commemorating the Tiananmen Square massacre during the coronavirus pandemic. Um, A Zoom spokesperson has since confirmed that the account uh, in terms of the first person uh, setting up the meeting had been closed, quote, to comply with local law, but that it has now been reactivated. Um, And their statement says, just like any global company, we must comply with applicable laws in the jurisdictions where we operate. When a meeting is held across different countries, the participants within those countries are required to comply with their respective local laws. We aim to limit the actions we take to those necessary to comply with local law and continuously review and improve our processes on this uh, matter. We have reactivated the U S based account in a subsequent article article, Bethany reported that Zoom had confirmed that the Chinese government requested that it suspend the accounts of several U.S. and Hong Kong-based Chinese activists. Um, Because Zoom does not have the ability to block participants from a certain country, uh, it made the decision to end some of the meetings and suspend the host accounts. In their blog post that Zoom published about this incident, they say, we could have anticipated this need, i.e. the need to shut down accounts based on their country, Um, while there would have been, uh, while there would have been significant repercussions, we also could have kept the meetings running. Uh, so basically, uh, as Bethany writes, this statement indicates that Zoom is agreeing to China's demands to construct an in-company censorship apparatus to prevent mainland users from accessing sensitive meetings. And, uh, that's absolutely true because, uh, explain to me, Zoom, how exactly it will work, uh, if you're supposedly going to implement end-to-end encryption for paid accounts um how are you going to guarantee that paying users from China are not accessing sensitive meetings if you're going to have those sessions end encrypted and encrypted seems like a bit of a dilemma you bastards
0: yeah um It's almost like they're completely full of shit, and the CCP um, probably has massive internal influence on this company.
1: Uh, Yep, that was also mentioned in the article about people trying to investigate uh, how much influence they actually have. And it seems pretty clear that they have enough influence to prioritize the (laughs) censorship efforts of the Chinese government over the you know, free speech thing that might have an effect and protect the actual U.S.-based user with a paid account who is using their service. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's good to know that their solution to the problem is not we should not bow to China. Their solution is we should block people based on their country of origin.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's like I said, every... Every time this company comes up, I just see um, more and more shit that does not make sense unless they are specifically trying to keep as much of their platform open to surveillance as possible. Because if they aren't specifically operating under that goal, um, how could anybody be this stupid and incompetent?
1: Well, uh, I bet all the Keybase people who were celebrating the fact that they got acquired are having a great time right now. Mm-hmm. Ah, oh, boy. All
0: right, we want to we wanna spill past the stupid geopolitics of the day into some fun Bitcoin stuff.
1: Yes, the next one is quite interesting.
0: So, um there is a new proposal um, that just got dropped on the Bitcoin mailing list uh, called Wabi Sabi. Um, and this is a collaboration between um, some independent people and some Wasabi developers um, for, I don't know how to put this, a version two of the Zero Link protocol. And, um, you know, I think this is making some pretty interesting um, proposals in terms of trying to maximize the anonymity set and the privacy benefit of a coin join, but also start thinking in terms of block space efficiency, and how to use that. So pretty much the gist of it, um, at the core of the mixing logic is um, a knapsack style coin join. So for those who aren't familiar, um, that, that's pretty much a coin join where you do not have um, single denominations for every output in the mix. So you have um, a bunch of different denominations um, and it's not so much of a perfectly theoretically constructed anonymity set, but the the reason this design is going in that direction is to kind of... How do I put this um, in the interest of block space efficiency um, nest anonymity subsets inside of the larger anonymity set of the single coin join transaction? Because, um, you know, at the end of the day, this is pretty much all about input output mappings. And so there's no real reason, like, why can't you have two, um, you know, different um, coin join strategies happening in the same type of transaction. Like you could, you could just combine, um, you know, similar, um, valued inputs and outputs with some payments, maybe a pay join, um, people condensing coins. And really at the worst case, if all of those subsets are kind of ripped out and isolated, um, each of those still have the same anonymity set they were on their own. And you actually introduce some ambiguity. So let's say that I'm taking a bunch of inputs and I'm condensing them to a single output. Um, Well, if I'm doing that at the same time as somebody is breaking up a bunch of inputs, outputs from a, a single input in a transaction. Can anybody really be sure that I am condensing my coins and he is fragmenting them? I mean, that introduces a little more ambiguity in who's going where in the transaction. And so the, the gist of facilitating this is, um, usually when you do a coin join like this, you register your input, And then you get a blinded signature under zero link from the, the coordinator for that specific input. And that allows you to, um, you know, come back through a different Tor connection and register an output, giving you your coins back. Um, but it's, it's literally tied input to input. So what Wabasabi is proposing is rather than committing to inputs like that, um, pretty much use the same type of range proofs in confidential transactions to allow you to um, confidentially commit to the value of an input you're providing and then break up that inputs value into as many different um, registration tokens for outputs as you want, um, also blinded with range proofs and provide a zero knowledge proof that all of the output registration tokens that you have do not exceed the value of the inputs that you provided. Um, And so this actually allows, in a blinded way, um, you to come back after you've registered an input and break that up into as many arbitrary outputs as you want. And the coordinator is not aware that there is a tie between that input and the multiple outputs. So this kind of shielding this extra information from the coordinator allows a little more of that, um, non common denomination, you know, arbitrary output creation without the coordinator being able to see anything more than what is visible publicly on chain. So as long as the overall anonymity set in that transaction, um, obscures the connections between inputs and outputs. This new registration mechanism um, hides all anything not visible in that transaction from the coordinator too. And you can even take this a step further and coordinate payments inside of a coin join. Like when I go to register an input, let's say I break um, three um, outputs out of that and I get three separate output registration tokens from the coordinator, I could just give you one of those tokens, Janine. Um, And then you could use that to register an output in that coin join that pays directly to you. And all I know about that is the amount of that payment. So let's say there's three other people who created outputs of that same denomination as the payment I'm making to you. I don't even know which output is yours even though I actually paid you. So that's disconnecting my ability to see where you put those coins I pay you inside that coin join. And so like this is a very big proposal um and it runs very counterintuitive to the kind of dominant um coin join strategy being deployed on the network today but I think this could go a long way in terms of keeping coin joins relevant, especially, um, you know, when Chris Belcher gets around to dropping an implementation of his coin swap protocol. Um, and you know, there's a lot of fringe benefits here. Um, you know, awesome things like being able to pay directly through a coin join, where even the sender doesn't see where the, the receiver's coins go. Um, You know, this opens the doors for a lot more efficient handling of unmixed change um, for people coming into the mix. Um, You know, this is all around, I think, uh, a really awesome thing. And it's, you know, I think one of the big uh, or first big improvements to CoinJoin protocols um, since Zero Link itself was dropped. So I am really excited to see how this proposal really gets refined and eventually implemented. Um it would be pretty awesome to see.
1: Yeah, and definitely one thing I noticed about um the paper is that they mentioned that the blind signature standard is going to be replaced with homomorphic uh commitments, value commitments. Um and they note this is similar to confidential transactions. Um which is something that a lot of people have been waiting for, but unfortunately requires a lot more, uh, requires a few things to be adopted before that's the case. And so far we've mostly just seen it, um, confidential transactions added to the liquid side chain. Um, Although, because Adam Back was the one who originally proposed using homomorphic encryption in October, 2013. So this I mean, this will not be as good as that, But one of the things I remember reading is that um, a way to improve the privacy benefits of confidential transactions was to use it in combination with coin joins. So um, this will not be quite as good as that because it's not it's not actually confidential transactions, but it's using the same type of mechanisms. Hmm,
0: and that—that's kind of the, you know one of the the coolest things about this space is somebody drops a cryptographic primitive or concept, and everybody thinks, "Well, this is the way it gets used." And look, along comes somebody who goes, "Oh no, wait! You can use it here too, and it's still a massive improvement." And oh, we don't need to fork or add anything to Bitcoin itself for this. And yeah, I mean that its It's really really amazing in the last year or so what people have been coming up with applying cryptographic primitives that we've known about for years in in different ways lately that people hadn't thought of before all right, so speaking of cryptography uh wanna slide into the next thing uh yep so uh we covered a couple episodes ago um, the, the Mercury state chain variant um, developed by Commerce Block that actually tweaked the entire state chain design to work with ECDSA um, multi-party computation um, that's actually deployable on Bitcoin now without any consensus changes. Um, just a little bit of a, a trade-off in terms of how the time lock structure works. Um well they just dropped a proposal to implement um a blinded variant of this. So for those not familiar with um Ruben Thompson's original state chain design um that requires L two and Schnorr, um he had the original version and then he had a blinded variant um where Everything that users provided to the state chain operator um, was blinded in a similar way to Xiaomi and eCash tokens so that the server um, learned nothing uh, about, you know, the transactions it's signing. And this kind of changes the, the security model a little bit in that the state chain operator can no longer spot check the actual contents of a transaction. Um, they kind of just have to limit themselves to a key asked me to sign a new thing. I'll sign it and that's it. And I will never sign anything for that key owner ever again. Um, And it kind of shifts the security model um, to that, you know, away from being able to verify a little bit more about the the contents of a transaction and that things are adding up. Um, Well, Commerce Block is proposing a blinded scheme um, that works with their um, ECDSA um, multi-party computation protocol. And really, when it comes down to it, I'm not going to go too deep into it, Um, blinding, um, you really want two things out of this. the message, so the actual transaction that the state chain entity is signing, um, you want to blind that um, so that they don't see new keys, um, addresses, you know, anything potentially built on top of it. But you also want to blind the, the signature so that um, the state chain entity does not even see the finalized signature. Because that would be enough if something ever went to chain for that state chain entity to identify um, what's going on on chain. And so you can actually do this um, just tweaking a little bit um, of the multi-party protocol to generate a signature in this kind of sharded uh, ECDSA key scheme. And it really just comes down to... um, withholding some of the values um, as the user from the state chain entity um, in the back and forth where you're collaboratively generating the signature. Um, you know, there, there is um, the R value and a few things in the, the protocol that don't necessarily need to be shared um, evenly across both participants. And so simply by withholding that information and the the results of some of the calculations you have to do in the um, steps to actually get a valid signature, um, one party can actually get the completely valid signature from the other without revealing the unblinded signature or the message they're signing. And so you can actually do the blinded state chain um, scheme that Ruben Thompson designed for Schnorr Um, with ECDSA too. But, you know, this comes with the kind of trade-off and security models um, in terms of what the state chain operator is able to audit before signing something to verify that they're operating correctly. And you absolutely have to um, validate the entirety of the state chain um, as uh, an owner or user of it because there is no way for um, the state chain entity to kind of have your back and check specific details about anything because they're never in possession of anything but blinded information. And so I really think this would be a a huge improvement um, to the Mercury protocol. And also, I think this really starts opening the doors um, to new types of mixing strategies. Um, And from a legal front, you know, uh, I actually saw this um, because Ruben posted about it on Twitter. Um, He makes the point, um, how do you argue somebody is a money service business when all they're doing is literally just signing blinded messages um, that they're completely unaware of the content of?
1: Tweet, tweet. Crypto,
0: crypto, crypto. Means cryptography, means cryptography, means cryptography.
1: Alrighty though but um yeah i thought Um, it meant death
0: (laughs) but um yeah those are two um pretty awesome new developments in terms of actual crypto stuff in the space so gonna be really awesome to see where those go
1: yeah and in a uh rather recent development the human rights foundation or or, uh hrf um has announced a new bitcoin development fund which uh, they say will be focused on making the bitcoin network more private decentralized and resilient so that it can better serve as a financial tool for human rights activists civil society organizations and journalists around the world The first grant, which according to Bitcoin Magazine is worth about $50,000, has been gifted to uh, Chris Belker. Um, HRF sourced the money from a private individual who wished to donate $100,000 to Bitcoin development, but with no strings attached. And HRF also states um, that they intend to continue helping other developers through an ongoing crowdfunding campaign um, with USD and Bitcoin. The Bitcoin donation part can be made through their BTC pay server integration, which was designed uh, and launched, I believe in March of this year. Um, And also what's really cool about this is because the Human Rights Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit, that means that your donations would be tax deductible. Uh, Which I think uh, people are saying this is one of the first instances of that being like a formal thing that you can do to donate to Bitcoin development. Um, And uh, of course, Alex Gladstein said human rights defenders and reporters around the world face increasing financial repression in the form of frozen bank accounts, restrictions on foreign funding, payment surveillance, and general difficulty in earning income or receiving donations. Hey. Hey. I'm one of them. Uh, with more support, developers like Chris can make it possible for activists to receive donations and continue their important work under increased pressure. Um, and so, of course, Belker was chosen not only because he has done work on Join Market, um, he also produced that comprehensive privacy guide for Bitcoin Wiki and also electrum personal server but um, because he recently published the software design spec for coin swaps which we already discussed in a previous episode um, and that seems to be the main thing that uh, kicked us off in terms of him being chosen to uh, be supported
0: yeah this was really awesome to see i mean like Belcher is really one of the most underappreciated people in this space. Like he built the first, I mean, not, not alone. Um, you know, Adam Gibson was a big part of it as well as the other contributors, but you know, he pushed join market out there and that was the first actually workable used coin joint implementation out there. You know, he developed EPS, like you said, um, to try and actually get people using their own nodes, um, and he actually, you know, this this is still kind of languishing as an idea, but also designed a uh, a variation of P2 pool, um, the decentralized mining pool, trying to make it more scalable in terms of payouts to miners by using Lightning Network, and now he's you know working on a coin swap implementation. I mean, he's really done massive things in terms of pushing development forward in this space but he's he's you know he's not funded he doesn't work for some company he he's just been doing all of this shit and it's fucking awesome to finally see him get some funding that can actually keep him financially stable while he devotes so much time to this kind of stuff like, he really is, in in my mind, an unsung hero in this space. I, I constantly joke with him about how I'm going to write a folk ballad about him one of these days.
1: Yeah, and the cool thing is that he also, um, in terms of the motivation for HRF to be doing this, like helping activists and journalists, he also uh, shares that desire to support those people, um, because he even recently uh, noted... On Twitter, that uh, in regards to SciHub, basically going majority Bitcoin for funding, he said he was glad that he was a part of um, keeping them alive and other similar projects.
0: You know, it's def- definitely in, in in the wave of stupidity and dumb shit and just petty nonsense that has dominated the world in the last few months. Uh, is an awesome fucking bright light in it. <laughs> Mhm,
1: although unfortunately, we have some not so bright lights, yeah, so, uh, you probably aren't anticipating this one. This is going to be a lot longer than I actually expected because, um, there was just you know, I have a long memory, and when things come out of my memory, I tend to include them. so, We are back on the subject of Zcash once again. um, This segment is basically going to be a continuation of what I said in episodes 193, 220, and 221. So some of it is going to be a little bit repetitive, but to fully understand it, you'll probably have to watch those episodes where I talk about this. But basically on June 8th, uh, the blockchain surveillance company Chainalysis announced that they had added support for Dash and Zcash in their Chainalysis Reactor and KYT, Know Your Transaction, products. In the announcement blog post, they say, You may be wondering how Chainalysis uh, or Chainalysis products could support privacy coins. Isn't the whole purpose of privacy coins to make transactions impossible to trace? That's an oversimplification in that it misunderstands both the privacy features coins like Dash and Zcash offer and how users actually utilize those features in everyday transactions. Wouldn't you know, um, I wish this news would have actually been surprising to uh, no one because uh, it has been painfully obvious for me for quite a while that most of the so-called privacy coins, while technically uh, incorporating some interesting cryptographic schemes that are worth exploring no doubt, um, from a system engineering perspective, they are, woefully, uh, they are woefully failing to provide such actual meaningful protection. In case you haven't seen them, uh, Aaron Van Verdom wrote a series of articles way back in 2018 titled Battle of the Privacy Coins where he basically investigated the various claims that the developers and promoters of these projects were making and comparing them to the actual results. Um, Dash, Verge, Zcash, Grin, Beam, Monero, all of them, uh, most of them did not come out unscathed, some uh, quite, uh, quite poorly, to say the least. And um, a lot of people, unfortunately, dismissed those criticisms, criticisms at the time because the medium through which they were published was obviously uh, Bitcoin magazine, a Bitcoin outlet, a Bitcoin journalist... Um, But now uh, maybe they are seeing the consequences of ignoring that or maybe they don't because uh, the marketing around these projects is so obviously fraudulent in light of this news that it's almost like they don't care at all. Um, The misleading marketing is still happening. In fact, in response to this announcement from Chainalysis, the Electric Coin Company tweeted the following thread. Today, Chainalysis announced support for Zcash. Our position and points of clarification are in this thread. Zcash is designed to give users options by allowing them to choose Bitcoin-style transparent addresses or privacy-protecting shielded addresses. Transparent addresses work like Bitcoin transactions, which are also supported by Chainalysis. Users of Zcash shielded addresses get stronger protection against data leakage than they would with any other cryptocurrency today debatable. Uh, And also, you know, as long as you use the shielded addresses after they, uh, you know, fix that nasty bug that linked IP addresses and shielded addresses, but let's ignore that. Chain analysis, uh, again, they continue, chain analysis cannot trace shielded addresses unless a specific user were to opt in and let chain analysis view their transaction data using their own viewing key, which is called selective disclosure. At the time, Zcash's transparent addresses make it easy for exchanges to deploy Zcash support. Some of the world's most heavily regulated exchanges, such as Gemini and Coinbase, support Zcash while fully complying with all of their regulatory and banking requirements. Um, Yes, the reason they comply fully is because they don't allow deposits or withdrawals from shielded addresses, and in some cases, these companies are starting to block bitcoin that uses uh that has coin joins in its history so good luck with that um and also they obviously don't use any of these privacy features themselves so yeah that's awkward. Um, they continue, this reputation for ease of regulatory compliance is part of, is part of why Zcash is one of the most widely supported cryptocurrencies in the world by exchanges, wallets, and other companies. Chainalysis' uh, announcement of Zcash support further highlights this fact. Um, yes, they are. <laughs> they are literally saying that they are kind of proud of Zcash having a reputation of being regulatorily compliant because they don't guarantee user privacy. Um, I don't see any bitcoin people claiming that the lack <laughs> the, the fact that bitcoin has been so widely adopted by exchanges uh, is is a good thing. At the expense of privacy features and the people who are saying that we should not uh, be uh, we should not be listening to them. Uh, These two features that people who use shielded addresses get uh, cryptography's strongest protection against data leakage and that exchanges get easy deployment and regulatory compliance are integrated together in the Zcash, Zcash blockchain. Finally, their kicker statement, users have the option of moving their Zcash coins between the two types of addresses frictionlessly and with complete fungibility. Complete fungibility for your transparent addresses and moving coins between the transparent and shielded pools. You're telling me that's complete fungibility. You're telling me that Chainalysis will not only be analyzing, or will not be analyzing the majority of user activity on your network because privacy is not the default, but that they won't be scrutinizing coins going in and out of shielded pools more closely as they do scrutinize people using CoinJoin. Are you stupid or do you just think that your community is stupid enough to accept this? Um, one second, I have to scroll. Uh, so just, uh, two days before this announcement from Chainalysis, um, I actually had a conversation with two Zcash proponents on Twitter, uh, when I pointed out one of the studies that showed the overwhelming majority of Zcash transactions were public, um, They said that uh, it was better to make an imperfect attempt than to make no attempt at all. When I pointed out various problems I had with Zcash, including the history of, for example, IP linkage to shielded addresses, the marketing promotion for people to buy Zcash transparent Zcash coins on Coinbase and various other things... Um, The response that I got was that unsophisticated users are boned regardless of the cryptocurrency they are using. So basically defeatism. And the other proponent I talked to claimed to me that, uh, very similar to this marketing from the electric coin company, my shielded transactions are not dependent upon others for my anonymity set. And my point blank response to that is that is not how anonymity works at all. Um... It's particularly infuriating though, because um, remembering the study that I covered in episode 221 that compared Monero and Zcash privacy effectiveness, um, Monero was clearly the better option there, if you didn't notice, Um, not just by a little, but by a large margin. And yet, um, I do recall that in 2017, when Zuko was given the opportunity to be on stage at the Chaos Communication Congress, which is a very famous International Hacker Conference that very rarely features any cryptocurrency talks because they have, unfortunately, a bias against cryptocurrencies. Um, He took advantage of that opportunity to shit-talk Monero. I will quote him directly now. Um, And I will even provide the timestamp. It's in a tweet somewhere. But he said, I really don't like to shit-talk about other coins because it doesn't do anybody any good. I really want more and better invention and sharing and value creation. But I do have to say, I have a problem with Monero. The technology is just not good enough for security. I can't really go into the details right now because it's complicated and I don't have slides. Well, actually, the the real truth is that you don't have any evidence. Um, It's possible to make much more reliable privacy technology than Monero currently has. And then he proceeded to refer to the Monero development community as a cult, he literally is the word cult. Um, the thing is, Zuko, what is a cult? I would say that a key characteristic of a cult is convincing your members and supporters of something that you know is not true, like your marketing claims. Um, you really should have just stopped at the uh, shit-talking-does-nobody-any-good part. But lastly, um, to show that they are aware of the great discrepancy between their marketing and what they actually know... Um, There was a graph uh, that the Electric Coin Company included at the end of their tweet thread that I was reading above that intended to show that basically the number of shielded transactions is increasing. The problem is that uh, the graph is misleading as presented because if you go to any blockchain explorer for Zcash that displays the number of shielded versus transparent transactions, The line for the shielded transactions is almost completely flat and it is far, far, far below the number of transparent ones, um, which matches both of the studies that uh, we've looked at. Furthermore, if you go to a thread on the Zcash Community Forum from September 2019, titled Measuring Shielded Adoption, it contains graphs uh, produced by a Gareth T. Davies, um, and he literally says in a comment when he posts these images, Given's uh, sapling, which was one of their forks, Uh, fork upgrades. Um, I was somewhat surprised that the total number of transactions um, including some shielded component has not increased. In fact, it's gone down a lot, assuming the script logic is correct. Um, Another user who responded in the thread, Chris83, says, I believe that the shielded to shielded adoption can only improve if merchants will start accepting shielded transactions even the zcash foundation doesn't accept sapling donations at least till two weeks ago the sprouts were disabled i have no idea where to use my zcash in an anonymous way imagine that your whole foundation developed uh, formed to support the development of your cryptocurrency and network does not even accept anonymous donations um well for probably they're going to say legal reasons regulatory compliance which is very important for us Um, now to be fair in the same thread which has been updated um, since then there has been some improvement Um, around the start of June uh, Gareth updated the thread again with more graphics to include May 2020 and he claimed that there has been a record number of uh, 11,000 fully shielded transactions in that month However, he notes, I've also added a chart for the shielded pool values over time for Sprout and Sapling. Um, I'll likely update this chart layout later, but I've used a monthly average, and currently around 5% of total Zcash um, are in shielded pools. 5%. Better, great, you decide.
0: Hmm. Real interesting. Really interesting kind of funny you know Monero is a cult I mean I I, I can get the seed where that comes from um, you know very fanatical in, in the same way that a lot of Bitcoiners are um, but you know what that doesn't stop Monero from being way more fucking private than Zcash
1: yep too bad that's
0: just called a fact
1: but you know Monero doesn't have like the formal regulatory compliant uh, marketing arm that we call the uh, the Zcash company and the Zcash foundation which have since been renamed to electric coin company also it's really quite funny um, that that story we did about the uh, Zcash developer alliance um, it was kind of hilarious you know, thinking about that later, the fact that they made this developer alliance, and it was about, you know, promoting innovation and supporting developers in Zcash. And yet, literally, the Zcash Foundation, they like, elect- I think it's, I don't even remember if it's still called the Zcash Foundation or not, I keep getting mixed up, but Zcash Foundation was not invited to that, which is so bizarre, considering literally, the entire reason for its existence is to support development in Zcash in a nonprofit way. Like, why are they not involved? It just seems like a shit show.
0: Same as it ever was. Ah, man. Well, you want to slide into something else? Otherwise, I think I'm just going to start lamenting um, the pathetic state of this space.
1: Yeah, let's uh, look at a network that actually has confidential transactions.
0: Yeah, so um, this is actually really cool. Um, once again, my memory is nowhere near as good as Janine's, so months ago is, is the, the most specific you're getting out of me. Um, we covered um, Settlement <clears throat> while it was still a proposal, and this was a project being worked on um, by Crypto Garage, um, which is kind of a joint venture between um, uh japanese-based vc fund digital garage and blockstream and the idea was to kind of take advantage of the the different trust model of liquid you know and the improvements from just a single custodian controlling something to try and build out um, a framework to help facilitate uh, over-the-counter trading in a much like not completely trustless, but a much more trustless way than things work now uh, where you pretty much send over the Bitcoin. Somebody puts money in an escrow account and then the OTC desk just has that until they flip things around and finalize the trade. So pretty much the entire gist of this is um, just atomic swapping between uh, stable coins on liquid and LBTC. Um, and so is, in, um, as a part of this launching, uh, Crypto Garage has launched a new um, Japanese yen uh, stable coin. And pretty much the gist of this here, in the way that the, the trust model works out is, at no point um, do you really have to trust a single party or custodian except for the purposes of redeeming that stablecoin. Um, people can peg their Bitcoin into uh, liquid. Um, a person can acquire um, their stablecoin and then just simply do an atomic swap on chain um, where you know, aside from the, the semantics about the, the fiat side of it, um, there is no full custody of that. It's just swap trade done. And the person who acquires the Bitcoin can peg that out of liquid um, through whatever functionary they use for that. And whoever, you know, actually sold the Bitcoin, um, they can keep the the stable coin on liquid, use the stable coin for other things or go to the issuing party and redeem them. And, you know, it's kind of like the, the way I think about this is it's moving the counterparty risk and trust uh, away from the actual exchange itself, you know, to the edges of that. And, you know, anybody out there who's uh, not really going to be trading, um, probably not really interested in this, but this is a massive improvement for how these types of big markets um, work. You know, these are massive, massive amounts of money that dwarf what's going on in exchanges order books. And the only way to interact with them is literally just put your money completely in a single party's control to facilitate the trade. And using a a kind of sandbox like liquid where there's never that single counterparty in total control of the funds. Is a massive improvement in terms of the security for those types of markets. And they already have plans to try and expand um, the, the stable coins that plug into this system um, in terms of USDT and the Canadian dollar stablecoin on Liquid. Um, and you know, right now this is pretty much a, a Japanese platform um, operating under Japanese regulations. But that's a pretty big crypto market and trying to interact with those things um, as a foreigner um, across international lines that can get very complicated in terms of regulations and paperwork. And a a settlement system like this really streamlines the ability um, for people to engage in foreign markets like that. So. Like this is a really massive push forward in terms of trimming away red tape for these types of OTC markets down to the point of actually making it much easier to comply with the regulations um, as a foreigner who wants to engage in these markets. So, you know, people uh People like you and me, Janine, probably aren't ever going to directly interact with something like this, but it's going to have massive positive effects for this market as a whole.
1: Yeah, I probably won't because I barely have a bank account.
0: (laughs) Well, wanna you want to take us into – I don't know what to call him, but this is uh, like the fifth time in a row that – Mr. Ike got caught doing something shady and immediately put his tail between his legs when he got called out.
1: Yeah, so uh, for anyone who missed this debacle um, that was discussed in episode 223, the last one, I talked about an incident with the Brave browser where they were caught um, by a user going by the name Cryptonator. Um, basically auto-completing links to exchanges and hardware wallet company websites with their own referral link. Um, And uh, they, as I said in the previous episode, they, or he, Brendan, acted relatively quickly and they um, published an announcement on June 9th to state that they have since removed that behavior as of the next release of the Brave browser, Uh, It says, over the weekend, one of our users noticed that typing Binance.us into Brave's address bar added an affiliate code to the end of the address, commonly called a URL. I don't know why they had to explain that. That was typed in. The bad news is that we made a mistake uh, when adding affiliate codes and logic using them to suggest alternative completions shown in the drop, drop down under the address bar we apologize to our users for this error. The good news is that this does not compromise user privacy, nor does it reveal any personal information. The affiliate codes identify brave to the partner. It does not identify the user or anyone else. Um, and I, I mean, as far as I understand how it worked, I agree with that for the most part, though it is worth mentioning that, I mean, obviously if you click on that referral code, um, these companies can, Then assume that you're a Brave user, whether you want them to know that or not is important. Um, Not a massive reveal, but still, there aren't as many Brave users as other browsers, and that can be identifying. Um, Then they say, we've already fixed the issue in Brave's open source code on GitHub and in the Brave Nightly build, the beta, the developer release channels, as well as stable 1.9.80 release of the desktop browser um, that just went live by changing the show brave suggested sites and autocomplete suggestions setting default to off so this basically means that they haven't removed it they've just made it opt-in which that's better i guess um it means that they've maybe learned their lesson again about making things opt-in instead of opt-out as was the case with the very poorly executed donations widget uh that they uh i haven't checked whether they've actually even fixed that but we talked about it in episode 149 where a youtube creator named tom scott basically discovered that brave users had been sending donations of bat to him without him even being aware of it because he never opted into the bat token donation system so basically what they would do is when a brave user you know was over someone's YouTube channel, Brave would generate a you know ghost account for this person, and so the user could generate bat to them and actually it was very unclear. Uh, whether when it as a Brave user when you were looking at these YouTube channels, it was not clear whether a person had actually opted in to receiving BAT for donations or whether it was just a plain YouTube channel and you were just seeing it. They didn't actually distinguish between the two, which ended up being a t- catastrophe because you basically that meant you had a bunch of Brave users thinking they were donating bat to their favorite creators. And actually the bat was just going into these ghost accounts that if they were not used after a certain period of time would just be recycled back into their grant pool or whatever they call it. Um, so that was a bit shady. Um, but yeah, it seems like they have they are slowly starting to maybe learn that it's a bad idea to not uh, get user consent for things like this. Um I don't know if they will have to learn that lesson again, but here we are.
0: Of course they will. This is this is, this is an unbroken pattern at this point. It it's, it's fucking absurd. Like Yeah, I mean, this is just fool me once. Shame on me. No, <clears throat> fool me once, shame on you. Uh fool me twice, shame on me. Uh this is like the fifth time.
1: Yeah, and of course, uh, the most massive example is the part where they took Bitcoin from wallets that the Brave browser used to have when they were transitioning to bat and basically forced a conversion that you could not stop and did not consent to. So yeah, that was probably the most massive one. And that still has not been accounted for in any way. But whatever. You can trust these people.
0: I just missed the best opportunity for a George Bush quote ever. But uh, f- fool me once, Sh- shame shame on me. F- fool me twice, can't get fooled again.
1: I mean, the only uh, good thing I can say about this is that uh, in contrast to a lot of the companies that I've been criticizing lately for... Lying, mishandling data breaches, not telling people things they need to know, generally being responsible. These guys at least um, had the decency to profusely apologize multiple times in their uh, in their in their post, and actually do something about it, which a lot of them still have not done. Yep. Although still. Once again, I think we have a problem in terms of ad fraud here because if you, just because you just because you can you can allow um, your users to opt into having this autocomplete thing show up, um, that's still not completely okay because that still means that if your users have enabled that and one day they decide to go to Binance or Ledger or Trezor, they are going to those places of their own volition, not because you gave them a piece of content that included the ref link or because you put the ref link directly in front of their faces. It's like, it's a a decision that they made, not based on what you did. But if, you know, I guess maybe they will perceive opting into this feature as being consent, or a, as, you know, the, they're, they want to support Brave with that. But I still, I feel like some of these companies who are run, running these programs should take a closer look at that.
0: Yep. And as far as I'm aware, too, that kind of shit is like explicitly against the terms of service of a lot of referral programs, too.
1: Yep. Not that i uh not that I have a lot of skin in defending the affiliate marketing programs of companies because I think they have tons of issues, but you know just to point out the hypocrisy here mhm
0: well all right, wanna mosey into the next one, mhm-. All right, so uh, CoinKite has dropped a new firmware update for the cold card. And um, this has some cool new features as well as their security fix um, for the issue identified uh, with how the BIP 143 spec is followed in terms of signing SegWit transactions. Um, So first off, um, this is a pretty simple solution. Um, From this point on, uh, after you upgrade the firmware, um, the cold card is pretty much going to um, capture and store um, information related to any SegWit UTXOs that it sees or signs from this point on. And so specifically what it's going to do is take the UTXO information, including the amount, and um, hash and compress that and keep it stored on the cold card. Um, So from that point on, once a UTXO is exposed to the cold card, um, if it ever encounters that again to sign it, it will actually um, run a check against that hash data to guarantee that the amount of that UTXO is being um, represented accurately to the device. And if it's not, it'll throw an error um, and refuse to sign it. Now, the, the reason that they're, they're doing this kind of hash it and compress it is because you're putting this data on your cold card. So if anybody was able to compromise the cold card, it would have, if it just naively stored the UTXOs themselves, um, all the information about your coins. Um, a, you know, a, another piece of data aside from just your seed or your keys that could actually dox your coins in terms of privacy and so that's being done as kind of an extra defense mechanism and layers against that Um, now as far as new fun stuff um, we talked about bip 85 um, a while back but this is a a new proposal um, to pretty much use a derivation path down from a single seed To feed entropy to generate an entire new seed. And the the entire purpose behind this is so that, you know, let's say you're a person who has a bunch of different wallets, Um, you can generate one main seed and back that up. And then all you need to remember is an index number. And from that one main seed, you can simply regenerate any derivative seed that you've um, generated using BIP85 because it's just going down a derivation path in the wallet, grabbing the data, and then using that to generate uh, a new seed. And so this is a a really useful feature, I think, for anybody who's managing a a lot of different wallets because it trims back all of the data that you have to back up to keep all of those wallets and coins safe to a single seed. And now, um, CoinKite is still recommending um, that you have kind of a hard split between cold storage and uh, a hot wallet. So, like for instance, um, even though um, informationally theoretically it's impossible to take one of these derived seeds and reverse that to the original seed that it was generated from. Um, they're still you know, out of paranoid caution advising to not mix cold wallets with hot wallets in terms of how you're generating these um, child seeds. Um, but it's pretty much just go into the advanced menu um, with a, a cold card that has a seed loaded on it. Um, enter an index number and it will spit out uh, a new seed. And so this I think is a huge improvement in terms of backup management for anybody who's doing more than throwing coins into their single wallet and just letting them sit there. Um, And as well, um, when you are signing a transaction, um, it's going to display the full um, transaction ID of that on the actual cold card so that you can visually confirm that on the device when you actually go to broadcast the sign transaction. And they've also improved the, the QR code rendering uh, on the Mark three to make it a little bit more readable. So, you know, overall, um, I think this is a decent way to handle the BIP 143 issue without breaking compatibility all over the place. And this BIP 85 feature is really awesome because You know, I I, I do have a a couple wallets scattered around and uh, I think I'm going to go through and condense all of that, uh, you know, when we get done recording this, because I am just loving the idea of only having to back up a single seed. (laughs) Mm -hmm. All right. And so have have you actually seen um, this Bowser wallet thing yet, Janine?
1: I have not.
0: Uh, so you remember the m five stack, like the little m c u thing with a a screen and some buttons uh, to program like people have made like lightning point of sale things uh with them um I think somebody made an open dime verifier with one of them too yeah, so um somebody dropped um a software stack for that using an Arduino library um to literally just make that uh device the m5 stack itself uh, a full hardware wallet now obviously that will not be a hardware wallet um with any kind of physical security guaranteed in terms of somebody can get their hands on the device um but i think that this design Is a really interesting trade off versus all the other stuff in the space because it's built with just a general purpose piece of technology. It's not something specific to Bitcoin. It's not something anywhere near as likely to um, be a very high profile or high um, incentive target for things like supply chain attacks. But, you know, it does come with that, that trade off of. Lacking actual physical security, but that said, It's a really interesting project um, pretty much when you um, You know after you get the the entire software stack and everything installed um, The device boots up and loads a Tetris game <laughs> That acts as like a decoy and you have to press a button within one second of the device booting up um, to you know, kill the game and actually load the wallet software. Um, and it's, it's pretty nice. Um, it's a simple pin entry, um, that's done in Morse code because there's only three buttons. Um, and I'm going to be going through the whole time and just nitpicking little things that I think, uh, could be improved. Um, that could very easily just be a, a scroll through number dial or other such things. Um, But, you know, all of this is open source, so all of this can be tweaked. And um, the general interaction between um, the user and the device is just through an SD card. And it's a very, very simple interface um, that just uses a text file with commands. Um, So, like, let's say you wanted to wipe the device. Um, You can literally just put HARD RESET, in all caps, in the text file and load it. And the device will interpret that as a command. Um, and there's also, um, you know, a seed restore function like that, and signing a transaction function. And there's a lot of little details that are pretty nice too. Um, you can actually show the the QR code and the address on the screen of the device, and it will never um, show the same address twice, even if you've, um, you know, like literally just. New address back new address. It will never show the same address twice. So that is a really nice thing um, to get right. But you know, mostly my criticisms of this are just kind of the the clunky user interface, like this um, method of interacting through a text file. Um, but overall, I think it's it's a really interesting trade-off versus all the other options that people have in this space, because you know, no matter how secure or how much it would cost to, to crack a Bitcoin-specific hardware device, those are going to be much higher priority targets for interception, supply chain attacks, and things like that. And something like this, that you can literally just build with a a general purpose development device that's all over the place and used for a million different things that have nothing to do with Bitcoin. Um, You know, I think that's an interesting question to ask. Um, Depending on a person's threat model, maybe it makes sense to sacrifice that physical security if they can actually stay on top of that themselves to do much more to mitigate things like supply chain attacks or targeted things that uh, are looking for anything bitcoin related to intercept and fuck with it before the user actually gets their hands on it and so i would really like to see this um, kind of take on a life of its own beyond the person who made this uh, and really start seeing you know features being tweaked and improved and streamlined Because this would be a really nice option in the long term, you know, especially given we're, you know, unless Bitcoin dies, we're probably going to start seeing a a massive uh, influx of people into this space soon. And that's going to get really messy and really noisy and really hard to get actual signal to stand out in this. And I think this would just be an awesome alternative, like something you can just do yourself that is much less of a target for supply chain attacks. And it'd be really cool to see a lot more stuff like this developed and improved upon rather than just thinking the only thing to do is just pick a company to trust.
1: I definitely like the idea of um, wallets, especially hardware wallets, uh, to be designed in such a way that they... They mimic or look like something else, whether it's a gaming device, like, I mean, I don't know if, I I mean, it might be interesting to have it actually play on the device, but it would just be interesting to have the design of the device reflect something that could be construed as, like, you know, a keychain or a garage door key or some other device that's very you know boring and not likely to attract attention um whether that kind of thing would work in in terms of like um preventing supply chain attacks or less likely to be intercepted because it's more nondescript i don't know but i like the idea of having a device that's more nondescript just in terms of like you're going over a border And they're going to ask about the weirdly shaped object in your pocket and why it has a weirdly named company on it and why it has maybe even a Bitcoin sticker. Um, That's the kind of thing that I think a lot of people have to have to actually deal with. And I've long thought it would be a good idea to make devices look like they're, you know, gaming things or keychains.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but it's, you know, the, the, the supply chain thing is mostly just because like the, the device that you build this with is just a general purpose, like gizmo for makers to fuck with. So it's not going to be the thing everybody is looking for to intercept and fuck with. And also, yeah, it adds a lot of risk to trying to do that because do you know if the person who bought this is making a Bitcoin wallet or maybe they're developing a little gaming device or playing with some other kind of, you know, tech project and you, you start fucking with those devices, you know, one, you don't know the person who bought it is really trying to do anything related to Bitcoin with it. And two, um, this is a thing that people specifically buy to hack on tinker with build things out of. Um, it is much more likely that instances of these devices being tampered with are going to be discovered. Because this isn't something like everybody's just buying and then they shove in their pocket. Like people are actively developing on these devices and poking around on them. So it's just a a very different threat model in terms of those supply chain attacks. And I think it's an interesting thing to think about. Like if you are a person who thinks that you can handle the physical security of things yourself um, that might be a trade-off worth considering
1: Mm -hmm. well better hurry up because my cats are hungry
0: Alrighty. um so next up um is an issue kind of floating around with the lightning network um how do i put this um you know this is kind of I look at this the same way I look at the issue of um, the the kind of mempool attack issue that Matt Carello and some other people from Square Crypto brought up um, a couple weeks back, where if you can just kind of float something in the mempool um, for long enough, um, people won't see that until it actually hits a block, you know, if they're not running a full node with a mempool. And the kind of double spend games that you can play with that preventing somebody from submitting a penalty transaction because it conflicts in the mempool. Um, but the general idea is it's it's kind of a combination of two attacks. An eclipse attack, um, so surrounding somebody and guaranteeing that all of their network connections um, go to you, and a time dilation attack, which is kind of um, playing games with that user's view of things temporally through the eclipse attack so that they don't react to something that they should. Um, and now this could be a very big issue for light wallets in terms of lightning network. Um, especially ones that are just, you know, like a, a Claire hooking up to Electrum servers, because there's not really that many, um, public servers like that. So you could really just sibble them and then wind up catching a bunch of um, light wallets in that and be able to pull this attack. But it becomes much more difficult as you start moving up to, like, say, wallets using Neutrino and sampling random nodes all over the network or um, something running directly on its own um, full node or to a, a node that it trusts. But the the gist of it is pretty much surround the person you're trying to attacks node and stop feeding them blocks and delay that with the idea of submitting old channel states and then just by preventing blocks from getting to them and kind of just feeding them slowly with a long delay, um, get that old channel state confirmed on chain before they can actually react to it and there's a few things you can really do with this um one is go after the entire um finalized channel state um so like surround somebody move a bunch of money through their node and then try to close out um the entire channel like normal state um with your earlier balance now this would take um You know, the the default um, time lock for that is 144 blocks. So you would effectively have to surround somebody's node and keep them in the dark for more than 24 hours. Um, That doesn't really seem that practical to me um, in the grand scheme of things. And then the other way is kind of attacking HTLCs, which are going to have much shorter time locks. And you can do this either by um, surrounding the person you're attacking on both sides and then routing a payment through them. And then the initiating side would effectively drop that to chain and then um, while the the attacked person is not aware of what's happening on chain, refund um, that HTLC on that side through the time lock path And then on the other side, um, you would submit the success and the the pre-image. And then, you know, you've just ripped off this person in the middle. Um, You've taken back the money you routed through them while claiming the money that they routed to you. And you can also do a similar thing um, being in between two people. Um, So let's say Alice, um, the attacker, and Bob. Alice routes money to Bob through the attacker, and when Bob goes to um, release the preimage, um, the attacker just doesn't respond. And then from that point, um, <laughs> the attacker can you know just pretend they didn't respond. Bob will go to chain and um, you know try to reverse that, and then the attacker gets the money back and then releases the pre-image from Alice and so ends up ripping Bob off. But you know the, the general gist of this is you pretty much have to completely surround um, whoever you're attacking and totally control their entire view of the blockchain. And all that takes is one connection, one block um, you know, and they'll catch up. But the, the issue with that is, um, you know, there's really no way to mitigate this except just make Eclipse attacks harder in, in a general way and work on solutions like that, such as the ASN um, feature that was just dropped in the, the newest release of Core, um, things like watchtowers, because, you know, a time period without blocks coming in. That's not necessarily an indication of an attack. Um, block times vary wildly, but you know, in the grand scheme of things, this is not something too trivial to pull off, except in the case of you know light wallets using something like an Electrum server. And you know, really, we I have not liked that model of of wallets um, for a long time. So this is just another reason to move away from that and just continue working on mechanisms to make these eclipse attacks a lot harder and more difficult to pull off. Okay, so last up for the day, um, I'm just gonna kind of go through this uh, a little quickly, but the Ontario Securities Commission uh, two days ago dropped a report on the entire Quadriga um, situation. Um, And there is a few interesting things. one, they outright call it a, uh, a Ponzi scheme. Um, so there's that. Um, and one positive thing I think that is coming out of all of this um, is anybody who used Quadriga um, or was a customer who has claims involved in this, um, they are not going to be fined, um. So pretty much any kind of fines or punishment for anything that happened on Quadriga, is they're not just going to turn around and just start going after users and playing got you. Um, so that is a, a really good thing. But on the other side, um, only $40 million roughly of around the $214 million of claims from users um, was recovered. So everybody involved in this is is going to take a major haircut from that. And yeah, I mean, I don't think any of this should be really shocking to anybody except the decision uh, by Canadian authorities not to just start going after users and finding things they can fuck them for. But uh, yeah, you know, I think this is one of the most potent recent examples of not your keys. Not your coin.
1: Um. Yeah, I mean, it's also the fact that this, this was, up until this uh, situation came to light, they were a custodial, regulated, KYC exchange. They had your personal information as a customer. And look at them now. This is how quickly that whole game can turn around. More KYB, yeah. please.
0: <laughs> is that keep your Bitcoin?
1: <laughs> well, know your business. Uh,
0: well, I think that's a sign that my brain is shutting down again for the day.
1: <laughs> yep.
0: Well, uh, I, don't know. I guess that's final thoughts time. Uh, you got anything for us today?
1: My final thought is that I forgot to quote sarah jamie lewis after i ranted about zcash um because she kind of i mean i don't know if it had anything to do about what i talked about but yesterday she tweeted that um she was doomed to watch people subvert the anonymity properties of foundational technologies while advertising their technologies as being anonymous and I felt like that was a perfect summary <laughs> of everything I talked about. Uh she did re- that was a tweet that was a reply to one that mentioned Zcash so it's not completely outlandish but I thought it was perfect.
0: Yep. Oh I don't know. I think uh, my only final thought for the day is uh, people in this space need to grow the fuck up. Um, yeah, that's just a general statement. So, Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, so I, I have a statement regarding the thing that we're not actually going to address directly, but I just want to make clear to anyone who thinks that the term OTR off the record Um, that's a thing that is it's a social thing and it's a technical thing there are applications which are known as otr messaging apps that means that they do not or should not be logging messages they are ephemeral messaging systems that is very different from otr the social commitment To not log conversations, or at at the very least, to keep the contents of a conversation private. Now, I hope that no one in this space would have the fundamental misunderstanding about the technical nature of OTR to actually believe that it would protect people involved in a conversation from actually logging the conversation OTR applications may not log the conversation, but participants obviously have the capability to do that at all times. That is always a risk. So I do not want to see another person implying that because a message can be logged or is being logged, that that removes the social commitment that may be in place. I do not want to see that again. Thank you.
0: Never thought I would have had to see somebody explain something that simple. But, yeah. Uh, On that note, we'll catch you later, punks. Adios. Goodbye. (laughs)
1: The idiot circle, my
0: out